So when it comes to sustainable lifestyle changes, it has to be one bite at a time, not literally, but you have to decide for yourself, what's the first thing I want to work on? Am I going to prioritize sleep? And sleep is foundational to our health. And I tell everyone, if you can't sleep the night, don't add in another hormetic stress, like don't add in fasting, wait until you hear sleep dialed in. So I think it really has to be focused on what are their goals, because that's what they're going to have to come back to. Lifestyle changes are not meant to be easy. They are designed to be challenging because we are going to make a change that's not just today and tomorrow and next week, long term. And so I I think it's always about like, what's your purpose? What are your goals? What are, you know, actionable steps that we can take? Like maybe you start with go to bed earlier, sleep in a cold, dark room. Maybe you add in some L-theanine, maybe you add in some GABA, little things that you can do so that you get a win. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. I usually don't eat for about 16 hours of every day. And while I didn't intentionally move into an intermittent fasting lifestyle, it actually became a byproduct of how I ate and how I navigated my day to simply feel good. I used to wonder who these families were and who these people are who would eat at five o'clock or 5.30 at night. And lo and behold, my hangry kids would come home from school. And if I did not feed them by five, it was it was utter turmoil uh, in, in our home. And so what I realized is that I was hungry around that time too. And instead of snacking at five o'clock or pouring a glass of wine at five, uh, I would just eat with them. And when I ate a well-balanced meal with them, vegetables and fish and whatever else, I really wasn't hungry for the rest of the night. And so what turned into a decision simply to make harmony and peace in our home actually inadvertently turned into a broader acknowledgement. And that is, I do really well when I avoid food in the evening and I eat a little bit later the next morning. There is a term for this way of eating and it's called intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is not Keto intermittent fasting is not something that you do necessarily to lose weight. Intermittent fasting is a whole way of eating that actually has an incredible cascade of physiological benefits. And that, my friends, is what we are getting into today. My guest to have this discussion, to break down the science, to talk about the evidence and give you real talk about what intermittent fasting is and isn't, is Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia is a nurse practitioner. She's the author of the best-selling Intermittent Fasting Transformation book. She is a two-time TEDx speaker. Her second TEDx talk has over 13 million views. She's the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast. She's been in health and wellness for the last 20 years. She's been on a million and one uh, television programs and podcasts and is so conversant with this topic and this subject matter that I really couldn't think of anyone else to help us break it down. It is my pleasure to introduce you to my friend, Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia Thurlow, welcome to Impact. Oh, thank you. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. I love how you say that so calmly, and yet we have literally been trying to do this for like <laughs> nine months. Um, and I think that uh, I think this has had to this is 
probably been moved through some sort of uh, divine intervention for this this perfect day and timing. But yes, me too. I've been totally looking forward to this uh, conversation because this is a subject matter that I really love to discuss. And today we're going to be talking about intermittent fasting and the its transformative powers for women. And before we jump into that, Cynthia, can you just share with my listeners a tidbit of your amazing story, how this sort of came to be this most proximate conversation that you were having with women and, and, you know, assisting them with, with transformation through intermittent fasting and then through all sorts of other health conversations now. But I'd love for you to share your story, how we got here. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one because if you had asked me 25 years ago, I never would have imagined that this would be the platform that I would be impacting so many women on because I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. My first start in medicine was in the ER in inner city Baltimore. And I transitioned kind of effortlessly into being a nurse practitioner for in cardiology. And I loved living as an adrenaline junkie until I didn't. And so after becoming a wife and then a mom to two boys, it became evident to me that I needed to get my excitement from other things in life, that it didn't need to come from this dopamine fueled, hang on the seat of your pants experience as a clinician. And my, the easiest way to explain it is my oldest has life-threatening food allergies. And because of his journey, it shifted my perspective. I started very looking very differently at nutrition. Obviously, as an allopathic trained provider, most of what I was taught is inherently wrong and very biased. And so my own journey of, of navigating how to safely feed him and exist as a normal human being in the world meant that I had to do a lot of catching up. And, and through that journey, uh, I got very interested in uh, functional medicine and functional nutrition and really seeing food as medicine. But what got me into intermittent fasting was my own health journey and being the typical adrenaline junkie, fly by the seat of my pants, probably doing too intense exercise for the life stage I was in, probably a little bit too low carbohydrate, living with a husband who did a lot of international travel and two young kids, I hit the wall of perimenopause. And when I say I hit the wall, I literally didn't have enough energy to get out of bed and I was not depressed. And I was doing all the things I was telling my patients to do. And I came to intermittent fasting because I had a desire to lose weight. I've always been a very healthy person, but that intense of a lifestyle combined with intense exercise combined with being very low carb really ravaged my body. And so intermittent fasting was a way that I was gently able to get back on course, figure out, do a lot of course correction. Let me be really clear. I transitioned from the hospital to clinic. I uh, stopped exercising as intensely. I was doing CrossFit level type classes at 5.30 in the morning. So I was up at 4.30 and then I would round up patients all day. And that was this grind that I was doing all the time. And so through that journey, I came to fasting and realized everything had to change. And that really became the journey and and my purpose. And six years ago, I left clinical medicine to create my own business. And at the time, I didn't have a business plan. I never recommend anyone do what I did. I took a leap of faith. I just said, I'm going to be successful. My husband thought I was crazy. My kids were too young to really understand. And so during that journey, I started attracting exactly the type of woman that I was. People that were being told in middle age that they should start synthetic hormones to control their cycle. 
being told to have an IUD placed. Oh, just do an ablation or worse yet, just pull your uterus out. You don't need it anymore. And that was the conventional prevailing approach to a lot of symptoms I was experiencing as well as so many women. So I'm not exaggerating. As soon as I left clinical medicine, when I started my business, I started attracting exactly who I was, women who felt they were being failed by the conventional wisdom. And so I started talking to everyone and anyone about intermittent fasting, if it was appropriate for them. And then in 2018, I decided to do a talk that evolved into what I'm probably most well-known for at this stage. But it's amazing that you can connect the dots retrospectively. It all makes sense now. At the time, it didn't. It seemed very haphazard. But that's how I've gotten to the point that I'm in. And, and now, you know, much like you, I get to connect with amazing guests and be able to share all of their gifts, their research, their clinical experience with women to inspire them to live their best life and to not feel like they have to live in a, in a life of scarcity, to live in a life of abundance. Awesome. And I love how you're like, I just did this like little, this little TED Talk. <laughs> how many people have viewed this TED Talk now? Almost 13 million. Yeah. So just like this little talk. And, um, but you know what it is, is it's like, you can't, you can't design a viral TED talk. You just keep showing up and sometimes showing up works well. And sometimes showing up was like awesome, but you didn't get the results. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I know we're coming back to intermittent fasting, but showing up is half the battle. Like you got to just show up without any necessarily agenda in mind. I think that's the magic, Megan, to be honest with you, because the the backstory to that second TED Talk I did was that I'd been hospitalized for 13 days. And part of my mental recovery was telling my doctors who thought I was nuts and telling the TEDx organizers, I wanted to still do this second talk. And I did that talk. This is the intention I said. I, I did that talk 27 days after being discharged because I wanted to show my kids I was okay. That was the sole intention. It wasn't for anything beyond that. Because as an introvert, it's terrifying to imagine having to deliver a talk in front of a bunch of people. That's just, it's a, it's a safe kind of scary goal. I agree with you that, you know, setting those intentions. And I think when we set intentions and be, and we are intentional and it's something that is tangible and something that is, you know, aligned with our purpose, then a lot of magic can happen. That's, that's what I fervent, that's what I, that's what I tell myself every day that, you know, when you everything is aligned properly, there's a little bit of magic. And I have this saying, and it really is what guides me. And that is when people have their health, they can change the world. And, you know, the full circle piece of this conversation is that this all started for you because you were like, where the heck did my health go? Like, where did this vibrant, youthful energy that I used to just have access to at a moment's notice, where did that disappear to? And so you know, when we're, I want to really unpack what intermittent fasting is all about, but I want to sort of bridge the gap because you were like, you know, I was, I was doing my CrossFit and doing my thing. How, how did you land on fasting as the thing? Like, did someone tell you to give it a try? And it was the one that, that worked? Like, where did, how did it enter, enter your world? Yeah, it was as easy as in the span of one week of my life. I had three non-clinicians bring up intermittent fasting. And I thought to myself, you know, there's no coincidences, right? And so I went to Amazon and I Googled intermittent fasting and the book that popped up was Dr. Jason Fung's book. And so I bought the book and I read it and I said, and I still tell him every time I talk to him, your book gave me the courage to feel like as a clinician, this is something that there's a lot of good research on. This is something that's safe. 
This is based on an ancestral health perspective. It's not new or novel. That is what gave me the idea, the concept of being able to integrate this work into what I was doing with my patients. It was that simple. And, and again, I think, you know, the universe presents us with ideas. And if we're paying attention, we should leave. And so that that's as simple as it sounds a little bit perhaps woo-woo. But uh, I, I just fervently, the older I become, the more I recognize that there are little hints that, you know, it's almost like a little seed or something's on the ground. And if you're paying attention, you'll see it. You can pick it up and you're like, oh, let's kind of take check, check this out and see if this information would be beneficial to others because it's all about being of service to others. But yeah, intermittent fasting, it was that simplistic. It was not complicated. I did not spend hours scouring the internet because even six or seven years ago, there wasn't a lot of information. Uh, now there's certainly a proliferation of information, but I don't even think back then there was a lot of focus on fasting. I think people were just starting to kind of become familiarized with it, but I was definitely ahead of the curve. Okay. So let's just talk about like, what is intermittent fasting? For those people who are like, I hear this term all the time. Can someone just tell me what it is so that we can all move forward together? So what are we like, what are we talking about? Let's define this so that we've got a common ground. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's the easiest way to explain is it's eating less often. We are eating within a prescribed time period and there's a prescribed time period in which we are not eating. It is that simple. We make it complicated, but as an example, the average American consumes a sugar-sweetened beverage or food six to 10 times a day. We know that if you compress that feeding window, that time in which you eat, let's just say it's from 10 to six, and you just eat, you drink beverages and eat food in that eight-hour window, we know there are significant health benefits from doing that, but it's so against the conventional grain, literally, of what we teach our patients that for a lot of people, they they don't like the word fasting. It seems restrictive. So I just say eat less often. That's a much more benign phrase. And I think for a lot of people, it allows them to kind of wrap their heads around the idea of not eating all day long and not drinking all day long. I mean, let me be clear. There are things you want to drink. You do want to keep yourself hydrated, but you're not drinking food, drinking foods or consuming food unless you're in your, your feeding window or the time in which you eat. What is that feeding window? It could be as different as each one of us. So I, I talk about in my book, um, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, a 16-8, because that is 16 hours fasted, of which most of that time you are sleeping, and an eight-hour feeding window, eight hours in which you can consume your food. But there are many different types of fasting. We have alternate day fasting. We have OMAD, which is one meal a day. We have longer fasts. We can have fasts that are 24, 48, 72 hours or longer. But I think for the average person, if they're new to the concept of fasting, it is easiest to think of it as digestive rest, eating less often. And one of the big milestones I encourage women to work towards is 16 hours fasted with an eight-hour feeding window. It's not nearly as scary as people may perceive it to be because most of the time you're sleeping. If you spend eight hours of your of your night sleeping and you probably didn't eat a few hours before you went to bed, by the time you get up in the morning, you've easily gone 12 to 14 hours fasting and not even realized it. I feel like what so much of it is, is stop grazing at night. Like eat your dinner earlier and, and stop eating or drinking all night long, which I think is a, is a dangerous window for a lot of people. No, I agree. What is happening physiologically when we 
engage in the routine of eating less, but having a fainting window, like, you know, eating in a, in a sort of 16, eight ratio with respect to intermittent fasting, like what are, what are the physiological benefits and outcomes of that? Yeah. I think one of the biggest ones is you become more insulin sensitive. So let me explain when we eat food, our body will secrete a hormone insulin in response to bringing our blood sugar back down. And most Americans, 92 to 93%, uh, but I only know statistics from the United States. So I apologize. I can't extrapolate to every country in the world, but this means 78% of the population is insulin sensitive, which means their body can effectively, depending on what they've eaten, it can go in, release insulin. Insulin does its job. It's like a lock and key mechanism and helps shuttle blood sugar and help shuttle, shuttle blood sugar into cells. But what happens is when we are eating all day long, grazing, snacking at night, our body never fully has an opportunity to keep those blood sugars low enough, Has doesn't have an opportunity to keep our insulin low enough to allow us to be metabolically flexible. Why is this important? Metabolic flexibility is critically important to our health. I would say without a doubt, it is the most important thing to our health. What that represents is that your body can effectively utilize a couple different fuel substrates or fuels for your body, glucose, fatty acids, ketones, etc. And most people are chronically overfeeding themselves. And that, that is what is one of many things that's contributing to metabolic disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, infertility issues, polycystic ovarian syndrome, all point a finger at uh, insulin resistance. And so, uh, you know, with my background, I think it's really, I always say like that cardiology background is still being drawn upon every single day that I work. But when we're talking about some of the the key proponents, the key benefits of intermittent fasting, we're really speaking to improving that insulin sensitivity. So our body can access stored fat as a fuel source and not just stored sugar. And the way to think about this is that stored sugar, yes, that is a fuel, but it is a quick burning fuel. It's the reason why people are hangry, hangry when they're hungry. So hangry, kind of like your two-year-old toddler who can't properly articulate that they're hungry, they just grumpy and have a temper tantrum. Like all of Twitter. Right. Exactly. I feel like all of Twitter is is <laughs> dealing with their insulin insensitivity. Yes. Weight loss resistance. So if you're struggling with weight loss resistance, it's more often a byproduct of being insulin resistant. We start thinking about the fact that you have energy slumps. It is not normal to eat a meal and feel like you need to go take a nap. Now, maybe on Thanksgiving or Christmas or a special occasion, you may feel that way, but that should not be your normal that every afternoon you have to drink an energy drink, have a candy bar and have an espresso at four o'clock to wake yourself up from the food stupor that you have at one. So I think it's important for people to understand that intermittent fasting, one of the, the key benefits that I think is so, so important is that it allows your body to be much more effective at utilizing different types of fuel. And when we're using fat as a fuel source, we don't get hungry in between meals. We're able to lose weight much more easily. Um, we're clear cognitively because of lowered insulin. We're able to maintain our weight. So that's number one. Number two, and when we're in an unfed state, it allows our body to go in and get rid of diseased and disordered cells. And the way to think about this is our body in an unfed state goes in and gets rid of the garbage. That's the easiest way. Just like we put the garbage outside a couple times a week, when we're in an unfed state, and especially when we get over 12, 13, 14 hours of fasting, our body can effectively go on and get rid of these cells. It could potentially go on to create disease or just be less functional. And I think specifically about the powerhouses of our cells, which are mitochondria uh, and are very, very important that they are vibrant and robust. 
I think about a reduction of inflammation just from eating less often. How many of my patients have less joint pain? They have more energy. Inflammation in an acute phase, if you stub your toe or break a bone, is important for healing. Chronic inflammation related to oxidative stress, insulin resistance, etc., is not a good thing. I also think about the improvement in biophysical markers. So how many of my patients come off of blood pressure medications, diabetes medications, just because they are eating less often now, always in conjunction with your healthcare provider. I'm not giving them that in that they have to have that in context of well with their healthcare professional. And just, you know, the, the benefits go on and on and on. I think about, you know, just from the perspective, people have less digestive issues, they have more regular bowel movements, they have less bloating. A lot of our modern day gastric complaints are a direct reflection of the fact we never allow our bodies machinery to go in and and work effectively. And so I think about this kind of nerdy concept that goes on in our digestive tract, the migrating motor complex. It's kind of like the street sweeper. They're kind of pushing things along in the gut. Um, And I remind people, like, if we're eating every two hours, the migrating motor complex doesn't work properly. It doesn't allow us to properly detoxify. It doesn't allow us to properly move food forward. It just overtaxes every single system in our body. And so those are some of the Key things that I think about, you know, when we have lowered insulin levels, it means we are less at risk for certain types of cancers. It means we reduce our likelihood of developing dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And to me, the older I get, the more I think about brain health, and it's becoming even more important that we're doing things to kind of savor and embrace. So those are some of the highlights when I think about what's going on physiologically and some of the, you know, the the downward benefits of not eating as often as most of our peers are. And we're speaking about this in broad strokes, but if we specifically centered in on perimenopausal women, what makes them uniquely susceptible to the benefits of intermittent fasting? Yeah, you know, everything changes. You know, in our late 30s, early 40s, the beginning of perimenopause is starting and our eggs are as old as we are. Uh, A lot of people don't know that. Unlike men who are replenishing sperm every three days, our eggs as old as we are. And so what starts to happen is as we are getting into our late 30s, early 40s, we're not ovulating every month. If our ovaries aren't producing as much progesterone, the adrenals will step in and they'll pick up the effect of the slack, if you will. But we become much less stress tolerant. Meaning, you know, when I was talking about my own story that a really intense exercise, not enough sleep, inflammatory foods, eating too frequently, can all impact how well we make this transition. Now, perimenopause is the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause. Average age for menopause in the US is 51. I think that's could probably, we could extrapolate that to Canada and other westernized countries. And so think about it from 36 on, we're getting this slow creep of less and less progesterone. And so that shows up as um, heavy menstrual cycles, weight loss resistance, fibrocystic breasts, more anxiety and depression. You may not sleep as well because progesterone is intricately interwoven with um, neurotransmitters like GABA. GABA is this wonderful anti-anxiety, kind of anti-depression neurotransmitter. And so why I feel that this is particularly beneficial is that during this perimenopausal time period, it, it is often a barometer of how well we are taking care of ourselves. It is often a litmus test of saying like, am I, does the alcohol still serve me? Does gluten and dairy still serve me? Does the really intense CrossFit class of five o'clock in the morning, five days a week really serve me anymore? So it really gives you an opportunity. 
But because of all these hormonal changes, you know, you will get fluctuating amounts of estrogen. So you may have very heavy cycles for a couple months, then you may have lighter cycles. You may not ovulate every month. You may not even be cognizant of that. But as these changes are happening, and, and perimenopause is considered to be a time when the brain is resetting itself. So it's trying to acclimate to these fluctuations and testosterone and estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen prior to going through menopause and progesterone. Not to mention the fact you get alterations in your insulin sensitivity as you are having waxing and waning estradiol levels. And so the insulin sensitivity piece is one that I really like to focus on because as we are losing insulin sensitivity, we are more at risk for becoming metabolically unhealthy. Remember I talked about like that to me is one of the really important things. And intermittent fasting is one of many strategies that are important for women to consider. Uh, I do find most women at that stage are less hungry. They're just not as hungry as they were 10 years before. Some of that can be explained by the fact that after the age of 40, we are starting to replace muscle mass with fat tissue, adipose tissue, which is not a benign organ. It is a highly inflammatory organ that has a very sophisticated communication network within the body. And so as we are losing muscle mass, we are also losing insulin sensitivity, which I'm convinced it's all interrelated with why our appetite starts to change and shift, but we're still eating like we were 18. So I always say, you know, if you're still eating like you did at 18 and 20, by the time you're in your 40s, it's going to catch up with you and you're probably going to gain weight, be weight loss resistant, not feel good, not have a lot of energy, not sleep well. And the way that I like to think about perimenopause is it's an opportunity for all of us to take better care of ourselves. We are always, as women, we are such givers. We give to our husbands or our significant others. We give to our children. We give to our parents. And all of a sudden, life is telling us, you know, you're heading into a different stage of life. It's time to, to focus on you. And the other thing about estrogen that I find really fascinating is estrogen is this people-pleasing hormone. And I speak from personal experience. I was that nurse and nurse practitioner that I was loved by the doctors I worked with. I was loved by my colleagues because I was such a people pleaser. And my patients did too. But as I've gotten older, I've lost that tendency. I don't want to please everybody else and not worry about what I need to be doing for myself. So as we are heading into perimenopause and menopause, we will start speaking our mind more often. There's so many physiologic and psychological things that change at this time in our lives. but I do fervently believe that perimenopause and menopause is where fasting can be a really, really good way to help fine tune, not just the exterior of our, of our bodies, because let's be clear, a lot of people come to fasting, lose weight, but more significantly improve things that, are, that can help potentiate longevity. And I hate using the word anti-aging. So let's just say aging well. Um, I think it's important to kind of reframe, but I think for a lot of people, it's a very, very important time to readjust, recalibrate, decide if, if things that you used to do are working for you anymore. And there's so many things that don't work. I went out to dinner with my mom last night. She's like, do you want a glass of wine? I'm like, I can't. Like, I just can't. I just can't do it. Like, it's, um, it, it is interesting. You start to see these different different pieces, how you engage in sleep and the foods that you are picking. And, and you know, on that notion of of you know, foods that you're choosing. Can we just talk a little bit about that side of things? You know, I, I feel like I've had this cohort of random women lately and their approach to eating right now, and these are postmenopausal women are like, the, they're all on a keto kick. And I'm, 
I'm moderately concerned about the the longevity in which they have been engaged in this piece. But like, you know, I want I one. Let's distinguish this like a, a ketogenic diet from an intermittent fasting diet, and then let's talk about some of the foods that you actually eat when you are engaged in a in in your fasting transformation, for example. Yeah, I think unfortunately a lot of people assume if you're fasting, then you must be keto or you have to be low carb. And, and so I always say fasting is just one strategy. And the nutrition piece is equally important. I share your concerns because many people assume that if keto worked for their best friend, their brother, their father, their husband, that it has to work for them. Their 30-year-old brother-in-law. Yeah. Correct. And mm-hmm. so what I see a lot of women not doing right about keto because they're doing the, I want five sticks of butter a day and six avocados and I want to eat all the bacon. People need to understand like a traditional ketogenic diet tends to be moderate protein and higher fat. And, you know, when you think about macronutrients, so let's just talk about carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Carbohydrates and protein are four calories per gram. Fat is nine. That is like twice the amount of caloric intake. And so although I do not recommend or encourage anyone to count calories because our bodies are far more sophisticated than that. If you're trying to lose weight, guess what? All that fat may actually be a hindrance. So to think about it this way, if you were to have a a filet versus a ribeye or a piece of cod versus a salmon, you know, one of those is a leaner cut of fish and a leaner cut of meat. The other is a fatty fish and a fatty piece of meat. Uh, that doesn't then mean that you then add copious amounts of fat to your meal when you are already eating a ribeye or a piece of salmon versus if you have the cod or you have the filet, maybe you are going to add some avocado to the salad. Maybe you are going to have some extra virgin olive oil. But I think people don't understand that that fat tends to be a much more nutrient-dense food item. And so that is oftentimes what I recommend. Measure your, me- your nuts, measure the oil. Be cognizant of how much butter you add to a meal. It is not you know, the fatty coffees are like my biggest pain point. I just say to people, a 300 calorie coffee is not doing you any benefit. You know, <laughs> it's not doing you any benefit. So when I think it comes to keto, there are some people that benefit from ketogenic diets. Obviously, if you are very overweight, if you are very insulin resistant, lowering your carbohydrates is very important. There is no question. If you are weight loss resistant and you know you're insulin resistant or diabetic, Lowering your carbohydrates because you have a carbohydrate handling problem is very helpful. But I don't per se think everyone succeeds on a high fat nutrition plan. What I do think is important is that we're aiming for more protein, no less than 100 grams of protein per pound of ideal. So when I'm looking at people and, and I we do you know a chronometer, or we're looking at their app and they're eating 40 grams of protein a day, I'm like, not only are you not satiated, you can't build or maintain lean muscle on a protein devoid diet. And so my methodology is protein first, non-starchy carbohydrates, adding fat if you need it. Um, I'm not anti-carb, but I find that most people really do need to lower their carbohydrate thresholds. You can't just eat the way you did when you're 18 and 20. And so nutrient density is important to me. I like, um, you know, there's a wild vegetarian diet and Terry Cochran talks a lot about this. Uh, you know, trying bison, you know, if you've never tried it before, try elk, try ostrich. I mean, try some unusual meats in addition to, you know, beef and pork and chicken and fish and eggs. Very, very important. It really depends on what makes people feel good. It's really that degree of experimentation. But I find most women in middle age need more protein, non-starchy carbohydrates, 
carbohydrates, if they earn them, and it may not be in the quantity that they're accustomed to, it's not three sweet potatoes. It's not, um, you know, the processed carbs. Who can you know? eat sweet, three sweet potatoes? I know. I always say that. And then people are like, exactly. How could you possibly? <laughs> because there's so much fiber, it fills you up, right? Yeah. So when I think about carbohydrates, you know, did you do an intense lifting session? And you can justify having carbohydrates. Here's the other thing. When people are looking at pasta and bread and rice, I always say to people, no more than 30 grams of carb in a, in a meal. And only if you are insulin sensitive and you've worked out for that meal. I think people think it's no big deal to have 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate. And y'all, that's far more than what your body can actually process in a sitting. So when it comes to nutrition, protein, 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 healthy fats, if you need them added in already on top of what you're doing, lots of non-starchy vegetables. You know, really when we say eat the rainbow, I genuinely mean that. And it should be in the ratio of three vegetables to one piece of fruit. We usually have the opposite a lot of fruit, very little vegetable. And when I talk about vegetable, I'm not talking about potatoes and root vegetables. I'm talking about broccoli, green beans, asparagus, you know, salad greens. Those are going to be better choices. And, you know, we need those carbohydrates. Those are, those I think are very, very helpful. But I think a lot of people have gotten the wrong idea about keto and they're wondering why the scale is going up instead of down. And they forget that nutrient density. So fats are a very nutrient dense macronutrient. And in my clinical experience and looking at, you know, blood work of patients, in particular women, do your keto for six weeks. But after that, all your inflammatory markers are starting to go up. Like it is not something that I'm seeing systemic uh, markers of improvement on. In fact, like we just, we, I think we need to move away from the scale being the only KPI that measures our health. I'm so glad that you said that. What did you eat yesterday? Like morning to night, what did Mm -hmm. you eat? Um, well, it was my husband's birthday yesterday. So I took him out for lunch just because we never get to do that. It's such a novel thing. Like, oh, we're going to go out to lunch. I had a salad with uh, seven ounces of, of salmon. So I had a fatty piece of fish. I had salad greens. That was meal number one. Meal number two, and this is funny, my husband's been doing Whole30 for a month. And because his birthday was yesterday, he was like, I just want to eat a pizza. So we made pizzas last night and he and my boys ate that and I had egg roll in a bowl. So I had ground bison. Um, and we use this kind of spicy sriracha sauce. And it was fantastic. And I was totally happy not eating pizza because I don't do gluten or dairy. But I usually have two good size protein sources a day and usually two meals. I'm at a point now where I have about 100 grams of protein a day, 110, 115 depends on the day. But that's kind of how I get my protein needs met. And I didn't have a ton I had a salad yesterday, I didn't have a ton of vegetables with dinner. You know, I had a piece of like birthday brownie. That's the other thing my husband wanted, gluten-free brownies. But now, you know, I'm back to my normal kind of, you know, I don't eat dessert every day. It just doesn't work for me. As much as I'd love to say, yes, I can have brownies every day. I can't. They're too easy to overeat. I also just don't, like, I'm very fortunate. I don't love dessert. So it makes that whole, it makes that whole component of the, of the meal that much, uh, that much easier. What about alcohol? Where does alcohol fit into this into this framework, like notwithstanding the fact that it can be more challenging for perimenopausal women? Well, it's interesting that you asked me that question. I find that most women start dealing with sleep challenges in perimenopause and certainly into menopause. And alcohol, we know, is processed differently in the body than other macronutrients. It processes a toxin. And we know that it erodes sleep quality. So you're going to get less REM and deep sleep. So that's number one. For many people, it causes you know, hot flashes because they get a degree of blood sugar dysregulation, which means their 
insulin sensitivity is not as good. Their blood sugar stays higher, elevate it stays higher and more elevated for longer. And we don't make good food choices uh, when we have the numbing effect of alcohol on board. We're not going to crave that piece of steak. We're probably going to crave like salty, sugary stuff. You generally don't make good decisions when you are drinking alcohol. So I think it's all about bioindividuality, but I find for most women, they start having more challenges. We know that it's very brain toxic. Here in the United States, it is very much a drinking culture. I find that when people identify that they don't drink alcohol or they're not drinking, it can be very triggering to people around them. And I think that's really unfortunate. I I think the other piece of it is you really look at the research, it doesn't support drinking copious amounts of alcohol every night. I know that there's been some research that has suggested otherwise, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we start looking at brain inflammation, blood sugar dysregulation, erosion of sleep, upregulation and um, hot flashes, uh, increasing your risk for certain types of reproductive cancers. It's not benign. This is not to say that I, I'm sitting on a platform that I'm saying like no one should drink alcohol. I just think you have to take into account your own unique circumstances. I know for myself, I loved, loved having a good martini every once in a while. I was never, I've never been a drinker. A dirty martini, just, I love salt. So give me the dirty martini. I'm a happy person. Um, in fact, I don't drink alcohol anymore, but I actually ordered a dirty martini just to eat the olives one night when I was out socially. And, and the waiter was saying, you didn't actually drink the drink. I was like, no, I just wanted the olives because <laughs> um, it's a conduit to salt. But I think for so many of us, we find that alcohol no longer serves us. And you know, during the pandemic, I had more and more female patients that just said, I either drank to excess because I was depressed or I just stopped drinking all entirely because there was no social aspect to be able to drink in. And I think that each one of us has to decide for ourselves. I, I think it's also understanding that alcohol can impair estrogen metabolism. I see so many women that are already estrogen dominant heading into perimenopause and menopause. And yes, you can intrinsically on lab work have low estradiol levels, but you can be estrogen dominant. A lot of it can be related to the fact that you don't properly detoxify. We have two phases of detoxification of liver. And then you know that third phase of estrogen detoxification occurs in the gut. But if you're not properly packaging up and break, breaking down and packaging up that estrogen to get rid of it in your poop, um, you can recirculate it. And so I remind people that although it seems counterintuitive, there's a lot of estrogen dominance going on that I get concerned about. And estrogen can, excuse me, alcohol can definitely play a role in that and make it harder for women to be able to properly break down estrogen effectively and get rid of it through their stool. So when that comes to being said, I know sometimes I sound like a wet blanket, but I do encourage people to get creative. Like I make mocktails all the time. We had dinner with a a neighbor the other night and I brought over my kombucha and my sparkling water and, you know, put like a lime in it. And I was totally happy. I'm reading uh, like such a fascinating book right now called Dopamine Nation. And one of the things I just find so interesting about it is this idea that, you know, half of the allure of alcohol is actually the anticipation of having access to it. And we actually get just as strong a, a dopamine high at anticipating the pleasure of alcohol as we do from consuming alcohol. In fact, if we don't consume the alcohol, we actually can like appropriately blunt those those dopamine reaction so that we can have them more frequently. So, you know, I love what you're saying about mocktails here because we we can kind of like we can kind of work the system uh as it were, get all the benefits of of what we would find exciting about having alcohol without having to have 
the alcohol. And, you know, to that end, one of the things, well, we both know this, where we really see transformation with respect to people's health is not when they're like, I did intermittent fasting for a week. It's when we're like, no, I adopted this as a lifestyle. And there's times where I slip off of it or we're traveling or we're doing whatever, and I make a conscious decision. But it is it is the commitment to engaging these behaviors over the long term that really drive those results. How do you get people to commit over the long term? Past the fad and past the dopamine and past the excitement of the new book, but like really be like, this is my lifestyle. How do we get them to stick with it? I think they have to be ready. I mean, there are plenty of people who pay you money, probably pay me money to work with us and they're not ready to do the work. They're ready to pay the money. They're ready to take one step forward. So I, I think it has to be tangible steps. Like I tell my kids all the time, I've got my youngest just started high school and he's at a magnet high school and the work is crushingly difficult. But I just said, how do you eat an elephant? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like any 14 year old would look at their mother. If they said that one bite at a time. So when it comes to sustainable lifestyle changes, it has to be one bite at a time, not literally, but you have to decide for yourself, what's the first thing I want to work on? Am I going to prioritize sleep? And sleep is foundational to our health. And I tell everyone, if you can't sleep the night, don't add in another hormetic stress, like don't add in fasting, wait until you hear sleep dialed in. So I think it really has to be focused on what are their goals, because that's what they're going to have to come back to. Lifestyle changes are not meant to be easy. They are designed to be challenging because we are going to make a change that's not just today and tomorrow and next week, long term. And so I, I think it's always about like, what's your purpose? What are your goals? What are, you know, actionable steps that we can take? Like maybe you start with go to bed earlier, sleep in a cold, dark room. Maybe you add in some L-theanine. Maybe you add in some GABA, little things that you can do so that you get a win. Because those dopamine hits that you were just talking about, people feel really good when they master simple stuff. And so what I want them to do is to be like, okay, I mastered this, what's the next thing? You know, what I mastered this, what's the next thing? And it's little itty bitty things that add up to largely incremental shifts in their lifestyle. But yeah, it's not easy. And I think, you know, a hundred years ago when I did my graduate level thesis, you know, it was all about Prochaska and D. Clemente's trans-theoretical model of change, which is a fancy way of saying, where is someone in their healthcare journey? Because I know when to push people and when to just take my hands off and just say, you let me know when you're ready to make these changes. The unfortunate thing is we get so excited because we want to help as many people as possible that what did I do wrong in the beginning? I give people too much information. Like here's 30 things I want you to do all right now. Well, no one can respond to that. It's overwhelming, right? So I think it's, tangible things that you can do right now so you can get those small wins so that it then turns into bigger lifestyle shifts. And the other thing is having a partner, doesn't have to be like a romantic partner, a friend, a loved one, a buddy that you can do it with so that you can support one another as you're doing it, an accountability partner, if you will. I think that's really helpful to have someone you can lean into, lean on, lean into that can help you like when they're feeling like they're having a tough day and they don't want to do the fast or they don't want to go to bed earlier, they can call you, they can reach out to you, vice versa. I do find that having that accountability partner is very, very helpful. 
massive. I love these tips. I feel like this is the perfect place to transition the interview to something that I call our impact ingredients. And these are just more rapid fire questions about, you know, who you are uh, (laughs) as a guest. And so here's my first question for you. When you don't have it, but need to, to cultivate it, how do you, how do you access courage at a moment's notice? I am a leaper. I am someone that when I'm not feeling 100% courageous, I will just leap and I'll figure it out. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the right answer for everyone that's listening, but I've come to find out when I've taken big leaps of faith, they've always worked out. So I think part of it's intuitive, but I do think we have to break out of being comfortable. I tell everyone being comfortable is bad. You know, our bodies are designed to be challenged. And I'm not saying you have to go run an Ironman. I'm just saying you need to get off the couch. You need to you know, maybe sleep 30 minutes less. I mean, they're just things we have to set into our day. So I think part of creating the the momentum or to make those changes is just being organized. Um, I, I would imagine, Megan, your calendar is a lot like mine that I have to plan ahead. So if I plan ahead, I can be successful. And so uh, when I'm not feeling courageous, sometimes I will leap and I'm like, I will figure it out. And I always do. But I'm not suggesting that's necessarily per se right for everyone else. I just know myself well enough to know that sometimes I just figure it out on the fly and it's all okay. And and clearly, my personality type, after many years of me working in ER, it's very uncertain. Work in cardiology, there's a lot of things that are very uncertain. As an entrepreneur, my life, not everything is, you know, a given day to day. Very uncertain. Yeah. So I, I think I thrive on that. That's my personality. So I acknowledge that that might be unique, but I usually just leave. I kind of like the leap and figure it out mentality (laughs) too. I'm good. I'm good with, I said to someone the other day, I was like, I'm really good when like everything hits the fan and you need to bring order to chaos. I was like, call me. I don't want to live that way, but I'm, I'm okay when that emerges. What's your motivational beverage of choice aside from martini laced olives? Yeah. Yeah. Um, green tea. I mean, I'm really not very green tea electrolytes. I mean, I, I really have gotten very, it's not until I travel that I realize I, I'm not very, it's like certain things are what I gravitate towards for specific reasons. I feel the need to share with you because everyone can't see this, but I'm drinking this like pink drink. And there's part of me that is like totally embarrassed to be interviewing Cynthia while drinking my pink drink, but it's like a beet based taurine amino acid. I love it. Yeah. I just, I want everyone in case you're catching the video to be clear, I'm not having Kool-Aid. <laughs> like my own version of, I remember my mastermind looked at me one day, they're like, what is she drinking? Because it's no colored. One to ask. Yeah, you're like yeah. it's beet colored. It's beet right. people, it's beets. What's the biggest non-negotiable for you in your life? God, I'm a girl that grew up in New Jersey. I'm like a no BS kind of person. I rather someone tell it to me straight, but I don't like dishonesty. So it's like I, it's like I like you being direct, even if it's not what I want to hear. I would say that, or loyalty is pretty important to me. So I would say that's another thing. Yeah, those are my probably two non-negotiables. As an entrepreneur, were you born with it or did you learn those skills along the way? It's funny. I used to tell my family because I come from a family with a lot of very creative people. You know, they make beautiful things. They make amazing meals. They are incredibly artistic. And I I was like, I'm not creative. But I found out I'm incredibly creative. So I, I think some of it was innate. I think part of my journey was I had to get the healthcare piece done and then I was ready to do all these other things. I, I truly believe with as stubborn as I am and how I can just put tunnel vision on and just move forward. I think I've always been this way. I just didn't realize it. 
Honestly, that's my honest answer. <laughs> Last question for you. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? Mm. I hope that my work can inspire middle-aged women to understand that this is not just the years to survive, it's the years to thrive. My hope is that I can interweave research and make the research and clinical experience tangible and readily accessible so that they can live their best lives. Because the one thing, Megan, that I get more DMs over and for which I'm very grateful is people saying like, your work has changed my life. Please continue to do X, Y, Z. And understanding that, you know, we all have tremendous impact. But for me, knowing that as a clinician, I didn't know what the hell to expect in perimenopause means no one else does. And so we have to change that for future generations. I think about my boys and my nieces and, you know, younger people and, and knowing that we can help change uh, the way they navigate their their lives. And so I, that's that's what I hope. That and, and the other thing is to demonstrate to my children that taking great leaps can yield incredible opportunities. I, I don't want my kids to play it safe. I want them to, to um, you know, to think beyond like doing what everyone else is doing, the path less traveled. That's, that's kind of how I view I've lived my life, the path less traveled, because I didn't necessarily do what other people expected me to do. And I hope that that's the legacy I leave for them. Cynthia Thurlow, always an inspiration. Where can we send people to follow along on your journey? Yeah, so probably easiest to start with my website, which is www.cynthiatherlow.com. You can check out my book, uh, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, I have 45. You can connect on my podcast, which is Everyday Wellness. And I also co-host the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon. I'm active on Instagram. I'm snarky on Twitter. Uh, and you will find me on Facebook. I have a free Facebook group called the Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name, which you are more than welcome to join. We have both men and women in that group. And it's really a great way to connect. Amazing. We will hook everyone up with all of those links in our show notes. You can get those at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact. Impact.